All right. Thanks, guys. <clears throat> um, Brad and Chris, it sound, I'm a little echoey up here, so if you guys can be working on that to come down a little bit as I'm speaking. Thank you. Uh, hey, good news. I found the pulpit. So it was lost, but now it's found. But the bad news is it's, it's like really more wobbly than it used to be. So like when I go to lean on it, when I'm going to make a profound point, it might just get uh, a little bit crooked. So uh, guys, we're back in Romans tonight, which doesn't seem to excite any of y'all. So uh, <laughs> no, I don't believe it. If I had to pull it out of you like that, it doesn't count. Um, I personally am excited though. Uh, our project has been ever since last year to walk through the book of Romans uh, piece by piece and, and we're in the middle of chapter 5. And we're actually at a scripture tonight that I, I don't think this is being hyperbolic. I, I think this is really true. This is probably my favorite section of the entire book of Romans, what we're going to look at tonight. So I'm excited to have you guys hear from this scripture along with me this evening because it's a good one. So without further ado, let me ask you to stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through verses 11. So if you would follow along with me, it's going to be up here on the screen uh, in your bulletin, but also in the Bible, hopefully, that you brought with you that you can read along with. God's word says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though, perhaps, for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this evening is that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. I also pray that the meditations of all of my brothers and sisters' hearts that are in here this evening would be pleasing in your sight as well. Father, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus Christ and in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys go ahead and be seated. Um, one thing I don't know, uh, Brian was telling me, he didn't think that Kevin had mentioned this already, but just wanted to make sure you guys realize, we've got on the back of the bulletin here that Vespers 5, which was going to be tomorrow evening, Monday, January 31st, we've postponed that. So just a shout out there, if you were expecting for that to be happening, we've had to kind of push it off a little bit. So just wanted to make sure that you heard that. So... There's a, a saying, an old saying in journalism, don't bury the lead. Have you guys ever heard of that before? My take 
on that is, and, and I know we have some folks in our midst that actually work in journalism, so correct me if I'm wrong about interpreting this saying, but my take of it has always been when you have a spectacular news story, like uh, the 49ers win the Super Bowl, something like that, or <laughs> this is funny. Some of y'all were like, yeah, and some of y'all were like, don't jinx it. Shut up, dude. <laughs> or a, a story about a, a, a huge election or something like that. You, when you have a spectacular story, you do not begin by hiding the details of that behind a bunch of fluff. You come out swinging. You give the who, what, when, where of the story right out of the gate. That's the idea of not burying the lead. And this week, that phrase was just bouncing around in my head because I forget what day of the week it was. I think it was Wednesday. I'm sitting there jotting down all these ideas. Because I love this passage so much, I wanted like the perfect intro to ease into it, to kind of to open y'all's eyes to what's going on here, to kind of slowly but surely open the door to this text. And it just dawned on me at one point. This text doesn't need my fancy intro. Don't bury the lead, Josh. Let this speak right out of the gate with the spectacular news that it's bringing. So here's how we're going to start. We're going to start by me telling you, or more accurately, by God's word telling you, Jesus, the eternal son of God, loves his people so much, he gives everything. For them. He loves you so much that he doesn't express it just with empty gestures or simple phrases. He expresses his love by enduring the full wrath of God on the cross in your place. He dies so that you might live. That is the love of God for you. But here's the kicker. Here's the part that I really didn't want to bury the lead on. Jesus Christ does all of this while you are his enemy. That's when he does it. It's right out of the text. It's the heart of what we're reading about tonight. Verse 8 expresses it the most clearly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While. We were his enemy, it says later in the text. While we were ungodly, it says earlier in the text. While we were weak, it says even before that. While we were still sinners, that's the win of the gospel. When it happened. And it's so significant because it means that, that Jesus didn't, didn't give his all, didn't express his love on the cross for his people uh, after they had reformed and cleaned up their behavior or after they had said, I'm sorry, or even when they were crying out for help. No. He does it when they are still fully enmeshed in their sin and hostility towards God. That's when. We sometimes will use this umbrella term for what Jesus did, we'll say the sacrifice of Christ, which is good. It's true. That is a very biblical term that's applied to what Jesus did for us. But sometimes it can kind of obscure the, just the impact of what we're talking about in this text. Because 
when we use sacrifice in everyday events, more often than not, we're talking about someone who is putting their life on the line for someone they love or someone who's innocent or someone who deserves the sacrifice. So we're talking about journalism to start with. Let's stick with that. There's more often than not, you're gonna, if you read the newspaper regularly, you're going to come across the hero story. The story about some selfless hero that puts their life on the line to, to save the innocent child. Or a husband or a wife that puts themselves in harm's way to protect their spouse or their loved one. And the hero story is something that doesn't happen often. That's why we get excited about it. It's a hero story. Look at this. And yet, it's something that we usually are accustomed to using the word sacrifice when we talk about, like, peer-to-peer interactions. Oh, they sacrificed for this person that they loved or this person they cared for. And the Apostle Paul even acknowledges that in our text tonight. That's what he was getting at when he says in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. What he's saying there is like, hey guys, I get it. In real life, we know of examples where someone puts their life on the line for an innocent, for a a noble person, for a friend. He's saying that happens. Although it's scarce, it does happen. However, what Jesus did is in a category all on its own. Because Jesus doesn't lay down his life for an innocent, noble friend. Jesus lays down his life for people that were his enemies, who were actively hostile towards him. He gives everything. The win of the gospel while we were still sinners is probably the thing, at least in my opinion, of all the facts of what Jesus did, that is the thing it That is most extraordinary to me. That not only did he lay down his life, that not only did he rise again to to eternal life that he purchased for us, but he does it while the people he died for were actively against him. Whoa. I've named this sermon today Impeccable Timing because it's that timing of the gospel that is just so extraordinary to me. And I want that really to kind of be the first point. You know, that's the drawback of not burying the lead, coming out of the gate swinging, is the, the first point is what we started with. So if you're keeping track at home, you're like, what do I write down here? It's this, the fact that the timing of the gospel is while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That is spectacular. And for as much, uh, uh, you know, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Fanfare that we give to the what of the gospel. That Jesus atones for sins on the cross. That he rises again to newness of life. That what is amazing. But the when of the gospel is just as extraordinary. That he does it. While his people are his enemies. So that's the first thing I want us to take away from this impeccable timing of Romans 5. The second thing though is this, that the timing of the gospel has this beautiful consequence of giving us one of the strongest encouragements for when our heart is struggling and afraid and weary. 
Here's where I'm coming from. The first verse we read today said this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The Bible says that the timing of Jesus doing all these amazing things while his people will excuse me while his people were still sinners that was the perfect timing for it couldn't have been any better it wasn't bad timing it wasn't unfortunate timing it wasn't like ah it happened it needed to happen eventually no the bible says it happened in one of the translations i think the NIV says at just the right time and I think for years I've read that and I've kind of just sort of breezed over it because I'm like, well, there couldn't have been any other time. <laughs> I mean, God's people were always going to be dead and trapped in their sins. That wasn't going to change even if he had waited another thousand years. So the right time is kind of the only time. But as I was reading the text more this week, I realized that that's not being fair to what the scripture says here. In fact, as these verses carry on, They show us that actually, God isn't playing when he says, I chose exactly the right time for this to go down. For Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners is impeccable timing because it provides our hearts, our struggling hearts, the encouragement they need when we are weak and weary and afraid. So, Many of you guys, many, all of you guys, you come into church today, or any Sunday for that matter, and you bring with you a whole host of struggles. Some of us come into church and what our heart is struggling with is the habitual sin that we keep falling into over and over and over again. What we come to church with perhaps is a struggle with the guilt that that creates in our hearts and our minds. Or maybe some of us come into church and we're struggling with the doubts that we're having about the faith and about the scripture and about what God says. Or maybe we're struggling with preoccupations. The fact that sometimes, I don't know if you're, if you're anything like me, we can be out there in the congregation Raising our hands, singing praise to God, but what's going on in our mind is we're thinking about the bills that we have coming up next week. We're so preoccupied that we can't even focus single-mindedly on worshiping God. We're struggling with all sorts of different things. And those struggles, they can start off as just minor nuisances, but ultimately they can turn into serious sources of us questioning whether we should even be here. Whether we're even qualified to be followers of Jesus. Whether God could love us for him to give us such a wonderful opportunity to follow Jesus and for us to consistently be failing over and over and over again. How can God love me if I've fallen into the same temptation multiple times in this last month that I thought I had a handle on but here here it is again. How could God love me where I'm singing hymns of praise to him? Great is thy faithfulness. But what I'm really thinking about is, how am I going to afford to pay that insurance bill later this week? Those struggles of our hearts, those questions, are precisely what this impeccable timing is speaking into 
because here's how the Bible responds when we have those fears and those struggles. It says this to us. It says, if God loved you at your worst, if Jesus gave everything for you while you were his enemy, how much more will he love you and care for you now, even in your struggles? How much more? Because we have this timing of that while we were still sinners, that's exactly when Christ came and grabbed us and said, I'm cleansing you and making you mine. If he did that when I was at the bottom, rock bottom, how much more will he care for me now that I'm his follower and friend, even in my struggles? So I have a silly example to illustrate this, okay? It's, it's, it's like what Brian was saying, that awkward moment of, of praying for Karenette and Teresa and Lauren and then immediately going into announcements. It just feels sort of jarring. So after a serious statement like this, uh, this illustration might seem a little bit silly. But here goes. I want you to imagine that I've got a date, okay? And the circumstances of this date, well, they're, they're a little rough. Uh, at least for me. Here's how it happened. The girl I'm going to go out on a date with, she met me and saw me uh, at my absolute worst. And what I mean by that is I had the sweatpants and sweatshirt on that have like three-year-old mustard stains. Um, let's say it was happening during COVID where like I hadn't exercised for six months and I just, it just like hurt to get off the couch I have food in my teeth. I haven't showered in, in a week. I smell. My hair's disheveled. Like, it looks bad. But for some reason, this poor soul <laughs> has decided she likes me and wants to go on a date with me. So, the date's set. Fast forward, we're now, Brian's over at my house, because in this analogy, me and Brian are like teenage girls. He comes over to see my outfit before the date. <laughs> And so I'm trying things on, I'm getting ready, and, and here she comes, she pulls up to my house. And I know, it, it's weird, she initiated the date, she's picking me up. I know that's kind of role reversal, but it needs to be for the analogy, okay? And I, as she's walking down the path, I realize, just a glance in like the mirror, oh no, my hair's a little bit, a little bit messed up. I, I got a little hair sticking out on the back, a little Dennis the Menace action going on. And I look to Brian and I say, what am I going to do? She's never going to go out on a date with me now if my hair's messed up. And Brian's like, dude, do you realize when she agreed to go out with you, you smelled? Your hair was way worse. And you were wearing sweatpants that had old mustard stains from 2018 on them. One hair being out of place isn't going to make her back out on the date. Like I said, it's a terrible example that has probably a billion different holes in it. And yet I'm hoping that it has the sticky factor. That years from now you'll remember, hey, remember when Josh gave that terrible sermon illustration? And you'll remember that, oh yeah. If God loved me at my worst, mustard stains and all, 
how much more will he love and care for me now, even in the current struggles that I have? I think that's our problem sometimes, guys, is we, we have a distorted view of how our relationship with Christ originated. And we begin to think that Christ saved us and delivered us as kind of just like a pal helping out another pal. Yeah, I needed help. Yes, I struggled with sin. But really, God looked at me and said, I kind of like this guy. He's got a lot going on. He's not that bad. I'm going to give my all for him because he deserves it. That is not the gospel. The gospel is God came to me in the depths of my sin and hostility and rebellion against him and said, I'm going to love you anyways. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm just kind of freewheeling here and making stuff up, because the reality is this idea of if God loved you at your worst, how much more will he care for you and love you now? That language is straight out of the back end of our passage today. That, that sort of uh, pattern, if, then how much more, it's repeated in verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. It comes out most clear in verse 10, though. So let me read it for you guys. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you see the pattern? If he came to us while we were his enemies, how much more? Will he save, reconcile, redeem us now? And there's a lot going on in that verse. And some of you guys are probably like, wow, we could probably unpack that for days and all the theological concepts that go on there. The, the death of Christ and the life of Christ together being given to us. It's true. But I'm going to have to minimize our, our sort of, our takeaway on this verse to simply saying, look at that pattern. If Jesus did this for you while you were his enemy, how much more will he love and care for you now that you are his friend? Verse 11 sort of riffs on that and says, how much more can we now rejoice in God the Father as opposed to being afraid of him? Verse 9 before that riffs on that more and said, how much more are we now going to be saved from the wrath of God? There's where the source of rejoicing comes from. But all of that, whether it's clear, like crystal clear, like in verse 10, or if it's more hinted at in verse 9 and 11, is this pattern of if Jesus loved you at your worst, how much more will he care for you now? My suggestion to you today is that God has chosen the timing of the gospel, this impeccable timing, to give you that powerful weapon in your arsenal to speak to your weary heart when it's struggling. To, to fight back against the devil when he uses your failures to accuse you and says, how could God love you? How could God possibly use you? How could God have you be an important part of the church body when you struggle so much? And you look the devil in the face, metaphorically, and you say, oh, you don't get it. Jesus loved me when I was way worse than this. <laughs> How much more is he going to show his compassion and grace and healing to me now? 
talk about a backfire for the devil. That's the encouragement you have for your heart because of the timing of the gospel. And I believe that's why Paul starts this whole section by saying, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So there's two takeaways, really, for today. One is that the when of the gospel, while we were still sinners, is just as magnificent as the what of the gospel. Christ's atoning death and resurrection. But the second thing is what we are just talking about. That because of the timing, you have an encouragement for your heart when you're struggling, when you're doubting, when you're in sorrow and despair. Remember the timing, God's perfect timing of the gospel. He came after you at your worst. How much more will he care for you now? I know I'm essentially out of time, but I want to finish off with an example that I've used often in my ministry um, it's funny, today in paradise I introduced this by saying, oh, you're all going to roll your eyes, you've heard this a billion times. Like nobody up there remembers hearing this. So I'm like, oh boy, either I haven't said this as much as I think, or people literally don't remember anything that I say. <laughs> but the example is what I've lovingly come to know over time as Jesus on the jet ski. And if I talked about the previous example being cheesy, this one's going to up the cheese factor by like five times. So Jesus on the jet ski is my way of talking about my early days as a Christian and how I understood what happened in my conversion. And it goes like this. I'm in the ocean, swimming, for some reason way out past the shore. And I begin to drown. And I'm flailing. I'm going under quick. My head's bobbing up and down under the water. I can barely get any air. And I cry out for help. Just barely. Help. Help. I'm going under quick. But fortunately, here comes Jesus on his jet ski. Full throttle. Just riding the waves. His hair just flowing in the wind. The sun glistening off his skin. It's just this beautiful picture of him coming to save me. When he gets to me, he does one of those sweet like Baywatch jackknifes and sprays the water everywhere and says, hold on. He throws out the life preserver. And here I am, my last ounce of strength grabbing hold of that life preserver as Jesus pulls me in and gets me on the back of the jet ski. It's a two-seater. And we ride off into the sunset together. Again, I, I know there are holes in this. Like, why does Jesus need a jet ski? He can walk on water. Just suspend disbelief for a little bit, okay? That sort of description was kind of my understanding of the gospel, and it was beautiful. I was drowning. I was about to go under. I had no way to help myself. Jesus arrives just in the nick of time, and he pulls me to safety, the end. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But over time, my understanding of that began to change a little bit. And especially as I'm reading the scriptures, scriptures like this one that we looked at today that talk about the timing of the gospel, I started to think about this differently. 
And no, I didn't get rid of the jet ski part. Jesus is still on the jet ski. But here's the difference now. Jesus is on the jet ski. He's still got the wind flowing in his hair. He still pulls up with that awesome jackknife spraying water everywhere. But when he gets to the spot, I am not there flailing my arms, crying for help. I've already drowned. We're going to take seriously what a scripture like this and others say about the timing of the gospel we are not in a position where we're calling out for help or, or, or wanting Jesus or, or, or grasping at Jesus. We are his enemies. We are, in the words of Ephesians 2.1, dead in our sins and trespasses. We ain't about to drown. We're already dead. And so instead of Jesus throwing the life preserver for me as I'm flailing my arms and legs... What he does instead is this. He gets off the jet ski. He dives in. He swims to the bottom of the ocean floor. He grabs my lifeless body and he drags it back up to the surface. And when we get to the shore, he's doing the chest compressions. He's doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I'm dead. But because he's Jesus, he brings me back to spiritual life. And when I cough up that water and I open my eyes for the first time, what I see is him. And I say, my Lord and my God. That is the timing of the gospel. That, in my suggestion, is the picture that Romans 5, 6 through 11 is giving us. Of a Jesus that doesn't wait for us doesn't partner with us in salvation. He goes and he finds dead people, hostile people, enemies, and he brings them home. And I'm finishing with this today because it hit me this week as I just was thinking about that. I'm like, oh, yeah, Jesus on the jet ski. I could talk about that again. But it hit me this week that every single time I have given that example at our welcome seminar, I share it often. I've shared it in church before. Every single time I get goosebumps saying it. Tonight's no exception. Because every single time that message that Jesus, well, what are the words of the old hymn? Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fallen God. Every time it gets me. And my hope and prayer for you coming out of of sitting in this text for just 30 minutes tonight would be that it gets you too. It pierces to your heart and soul. And you say, that's when Jesus came to get me. When I was his enemy. And that it would spur you on to worship. We're going to sing one final song here tonight before we leave. And a pray. That you would sing it with your heart set on that timing of the gospel. And when it is that Jesus came and got you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Words can't express the gratitude that we have for you coming and getting a people who were your enemies. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. We surely do not deserve it, and yet you give it in abundance. 
receive our praise and worship this evening. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.